Yeah, for starters, the the outfitters list is you know key for starters. Um, over time, you definitely develop your own list of what you can get by with, and and my list varies from very short on a sheep hunt to you know a drive up bear camp hunt where I've got my pickup full of stuff. The Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Appreciate everyone tuning in for another episode. I'm Sam Weaver, host of today's Tipsy Tuesday, a short segment covering rockslide.com tidbits, hunting news from across the West, with just a sprinkling of tips and tricks to keep you well-informed for your next adventure. Kicking off today's show with some important announcements. The Arizona elk and antelope application period closes on February 6th. February 10th is the deadline for spring bear in Oregon. February 14th, spring bear in New Mexico. February 15th, controlled tags in Idaho. And February 20th, black bear in Utah. If you want to apply for any of these hunts, mark it on your calendar. All right, it's officially the off-season. If you're anything like me, you've already started thinking about gear upgrades and drawing tags. Drawing tags has become increasingly more difficult, it seems, but what can we do? Wandering these sportsman shows, I see all kinds of outfitters in far-off places with all kinds of things advertised. Plenty of interesting destination hunts, but I have no idea where to separate the good from the bad. How to go about narrowing these down and ultimately vetting my chosen outfit. That brings us to today's show, Destination Hunting, for those who have yet to do it. Our guest today is Rockslide's own Corey Smith, a.k.a. Coda Man. I've loved following Corey's adventures on the forum. Corey has hunted all over North America, completed a Super Slam in 2019, and has two Grand Slams for sheep. He's here to give us a bit of insight on how to go about picking a destination hunt. Corey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sam. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to, to come on here and share some share some knowledge. You're definitely an accomplished hunter, but on today's show, you know, I kind of want to drill down into uh, what it takes, you know, to pick a, a destination and how we vet that outfitter. You know, the, the knowledge that you gain from Rockslide is is huge. Uh, I use that along with another uh, fairly well-known site out there. Um, I've actually met some of my best friends in the hunting community through Rockslide and, and uh, one of the other hunting communities out there. And, and with that, you get a circle of friends that are traveling and hunting and they've all done it and you, and you're starting to do it. And, uh, you get a lot of good firsthand knowledge. I spent a ton of time at the sheep show, um, not only for sheep hunts, but for anything in North America, talking to outfitters, uh, talking to guys. I, I really started this actively about 10 to 12 years ago. I'd always dabbled in some of the the you know the more normal North American hunts like white-tailed deer, pronghorn, black bear, some of those those more basic things. But really didn't get into a lot of the mountain hunting until about ten years ago. Uh, I started early on booking a lot of hunts through a booking agent, bow hunting safari consultants. I was doing a lot of bow hunting uh, back then, and and they were a great help. Uh, but as I grew out of that mostly and just starting to do my own research, meeting people at the sheep show, meeting friends uh, that travel and hunt. Uh, I kind of fell into my place with who I like to hunt with and who I wanted to hunt with and who I got comfortable with. 
as you experienced a bunch of hunts, you kind of found what you liked and what you didn't like for companions and areas you like to hunt and, and accommodations, you know, I think all of that. But I guess when you're out there and you're at the sheep show and you're looking down the aisles and aisles and aisles of outfitters that all look the same, I mean, where do you kind of go there? So prior to going to a show, you know, I make my mental list of the specific outfitters I'm going to go talk to. I'm not just popping up and down the aisles trying to talk to everybody, but I have a good idea about a a select handful of of outfitters that I want to talk to when I go in the building. And I seek them out and spend quite a bit of time with them through the weekend, uh, asking them questions and and getting to know them. This, you know, this really, it becomes a, a comfort zone thing. Whatever you get comfortable with, with an outfitter, you, you know, you get comfortable with a guy. And that's who, you know, I trust my instincts and we share a lot of like ways we think and a lot of like patterns that way. I, I feel it's a good fit. And I go doing it that way. Honestly, I've only had one poor hunt in, in the last 12 years. And that hunt was lined up by a booking agent. (laughs) So you would say step one is budget, decide how much you want to spend. In your opinion, spending more, does that get you more? I mean, is that true? I learned early on that spending more gets me more. Um, I I tried to go, you know, hunt on the cheap early on uh, because it's what I had. You know, I see pictures of all these great animals that a lot of these high-end outfitters are taking. And uh, finally, I started booking them and started going with them. And and yeah, for the most part, you get what you pay for. And as far as openings goes, if a guy doesn't have openings, that's a good thing. You know, when you're doing these these hunts and, and guys have all kinds of openings at the, the following year, you know, you got to tread lightly. And that doesn't mean it's a bad hunt, but uh, certainly I, I look at bookings and, and how far out people are. And I there was a lot of times that I was booking three years out. Yeah, I know one of the concerns, you know, when you're a return client, seems like, you know, they give you a little bit more uh, leeway, a little bit, but maybe a little better spot or something. And I think it makes a lot of people timid for that first booking. You know, nobody wants to be the first guy in there and kind of get the short end of the stick. Yeah. But I guess if you're if you're booking with quality people, even the short end of the stick's pretty good. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, as as you develop relationships with these guys, it only gets better. You know, when you find an outfitter that you hit it off with and and he's in your wheelhouse for some of the species you want to hunt. Yeah, the more you're there, it seems like the better things go. But, you know, no doubt you got to always be first at something and uh, you got to reach out and take a step out of your comfort zone sometimes and go for it. And I did a lot of that early on. Then I built relationship and anymore, I'm 100% confident when I go into a hunt that it's going to be a great hunt. Yeah, I'd imagine, you know, once you make relationships, not only with the outfitter, but people that are doing the same kind of hunts as you and you're hunting with them, they're in camp with you, you know, and you can reach out and be like, where else have you been? You know, what have you seen? Who would you go with? Who wouldn't you go with type of deal? Yeah, there's probably 20 of us in our circle of traveling hunters that, you know, we're constantly calling each other and reaching out to each other about species and and who would you do this species with and who have you done that species with? And it's a circle and that gets you as far as long as anything, having that circle of people that have done it, who've been there and done it. But for the guy just starting out, you know, you have to you have to take some chances. You have to go with your gut um, and you have to take some chances and get out there and do it. Nobody wants to, to risk a sheep hunt <laughs> and be the first guy. I did my first few. I, I went on my first four sheep hunts. I killed one sheep. And since then, I've killed 11 in a row. <laughs> 
Well, and I think, you know, for me, I was looking at Central Asia. I really, uh-huh. I think that's a lot of bang for the buck that you can get there, you know. I mean, that's the hardest part is like, where do you start? You know, I know how much money I want to spend and I know how much money I can spend. And they're not necessarily the same. What questions are you asking these prospective outfitters when you get up there and you and you chat them up? I mean, do you got like a laundry list of questions or? My biggest thing is I want to talk to guys that have hunted with them before, both successfully and uh, more importantly, probably the unsuccessful guys, you know, and did they have a good hunt or was it just a lousy hunt from the get go? But that's probably number one is that I want to talk to guys that have hunted with them. Beyond that, it's, you know, you, it, the basic stuff of accommodations and what type of hunt is it? Are you going to be grinding it out every day on the mountain? Uh, are you going to have horses? you know, just the basic hunting stuff. But first and foremost, I want to hear from guys who hunted with them both successfully and unsuccessfully. Yeah, I get firsthand knowledge of how the operation goes down. I think too, do you notice a lot of these operations changing hands? I know that's like a common thing in Alaska where something will be super awesome, then they'll sell out and be crappy for like the next four years. Then they'll get a bad reputation, then they'll sell out again. Yeah. Uh, that's going on in Canada a little bit right now. Back some of the outfitters I've hunted with that were excellent, excellent outfitters now, you know, maybe don't have the best reputation with the new owner and have done things a little differently. It's hard for me to recommend a sale. You know, uh, there's another big outfit in Canada that just sold a big sheep outfit and they didn't honor any of the contracts that were with the previous one. They just started over. Um, and that goes on and they they have their reasons for, for wanting to do that too. Um, COVID brought on this pent up demand for hunt for traveling hunting. You know, there was a couple of years there where nobody did it really to speak of. And and now the demand is through the roof for these mountain hunts and the pricing has just gone wild. Yeah, these outfits aren't honoring previous contracts. They're they're setting their own price. And I guess to be fair to them, uh, they got to get what, what they can get when they can get it. I remember I was at the expo and, you know, I was looking at an Ibex hunt and it was $7,000 and I hemmed and hawed about it. And, you know, I mean, that's not even realistic at today's price. I can't even believe that I, that's a big regret I, yeah. <laughs> that I have for sure, you know, and, and now it kind of depends on where you are in life and whatnot, but I feel like I'm getting a little older. My kids are grown. Some things are still never going to be achievable like a stone sheep for me. I, you know, that's never an option. But I do think this, if you're thinking about something right now, let's say a Dow sheep, I mean, that the price of those is only going up. So, you know, if you can make it happen, you better start locking it in. My question is, okay, so now we've, we've found an outfitter, we booked with them. What about logistics? How do we get our stuff there? Do you rely, I guess probably not you now, but I mean, is, is it a fair bet to say you rely on the outfitter for what you need and what you should be bringing and, and how do you determine what gear is necessary and what not? Yeah, for starters, the, the outfitters list is, you know, key for starters. Um, over time, you definitely develop your own list of what you can get by with. And, and my list varies from very short on a sheep hunt to, you know, a drive up bear camp hunt where I've got my pickup full of stuff. You learn over time that the items, the gear items you can live with and can't live without, you know, you go with it, but lists are huge. You know, you, you may, I have a different list for every single type of hunt I do. And, you know, it starts with the outfitter list and then it, it meshes with my, my own mountain list and whether I'm hunting sheep or elk or, or anything else. And I have just lists everywhere for every different species there is. And at the end of the day, you know, the core of that list is very similar. 
But what varies are, are the, the luxury type items, the things you can maybe live with or live without. And it, for me, it started with an outfitter list. Um, and then it grew to getting lists from friends who've done the hunts. Hey, send me your packing list. You know, and now I seem like I'm sending my packing lists out weekly <laughs> to <laughs> that want, you know, that want to know, hey, what, what do you take on this type of hunt? I sent out a black bear list yesterday. So, yeah. That's the other thing, too, you know, especially in a community like Rockslide, don't be afraid to reach out to somebody. You know, if somebody reaches out to you, Corey, and they're good about it, for sure you're going to share with them. And if, and if you don't want to share, you're not. I mean, they could just move on to the next guy down the list. It's a simple process, really. Yep. So helpful. And even now, I, I got a lot of help early on from Rockslide, from PMs and, and people in general. And now I'm trying to give back that same way. People are, you know, I'll have PMs quite often, you know, about from everything from species to outfitters to list gear list to to every you know everything in between uh i was a bit of a gear junkie throughout my main my my main hunting career i call it the last 10 years and i had everything uh <laughs> if it was if it was out there and new to be had i had it and uh, i i learned fast what i what was necessary and what i liked and what i didn't like and i ended up with full kits of first light kuyu cryptic and sitka have now grabbed all the pieces of each one of those I like and sold the rest off because I know what I like and know what I want. That just comes with experience and you have to use it. And I think this too, you know, even the, as a staff member on Rockslide, you know, you don't get to try everything and that's, that stuff's expensive yeah. and you do have to lean on people that have tried all six jackets, have tried yeah. every kind of Merino wool versus synthetic. Yeah. Otherwise you, you're going to have to do it yourself and you're going to have to pony that money up. Yeah. And I did that for years. I, from boots to puffy jackets to soft shells to rain gear, I bought it all, tried it and sold it all <laughs> and kept what I liked. And, you know, that's going to be a little bit different for everybody, but I do feel like I get a good handle on, you know, what's practical on a mountain hunt versus what's not. And yeah, it, it can get expensive trying. So you lean on people hard to say, hey, what works for you? Boots is something that's totally subjective to the person and you're never going to get you know, I've done tons of boot reviews, but it's really, it's so subjective to the person doing it and how they fit you that it's really hard. And that's that way with a lot of gear. Yeah. And terrain has a huge impact on the way boots wear and, you know, how your foot is wearing inside the boot for sure. Yep. Pack, I've, I've owned and tried every pack, I think, in the universe from Kafaru to Kuyu to Sitka's packs to, to Stone Glacier to everything. And same thing. You got to go with what fits you and what works for you. Let me ask you this, because I'm kind of nerd out on packs a little bit myself. I think I know the answer to this, but do you find that you have like one that you use all the time or do you have one for every job that, that you want to do every hunt you go on? Seems like you have, you know, like I have a separate day pack. I have one for four or five days and I have one for, for seven to 10 days. You know, I, they're not the same. I probably could get by with it, but I don't have to. So I don't. For years, I had the wall of packs and I had every pack for every imaginal situation you could ever amount to. And I'm now I'm really I'm down to actually one pack right now. Uh, it's a very versatile pack that I can use as a day pack and get several days out of it. Share it with us right here if you want. Stone Glacier 5900 is what that's my go to. Uh, Kafaru has. I mean, I have owned so many Kafaro packs. I've known Aaron for years. I've used their packs. Their packs are bomb-proof. They're a little heavy for the mountain, you know, the ultralight mountain guy. But they're as good as you can do for a general-use pack. I gravitated to Stone Glacier because of their weight uh, later on in my hunting career. And especially as I aged, I just didn't want to carry the weight. And uh, that's kind of where I've, I've, I've settled into. But I've used, yeah, packs from just about everybody else as well. 
you know, the innovation yeah. uh, keeps amazing me. I, I always think, well, there's not too much more we can do. And then, you know, I'll go to a show and see the new K4, the new ARC system from Kafaro. You know, I'm pretty excited to check that out at the expo when they roll that out. I mean, yeah. you know, there's just, they're constantly trying to innovate. Everybody's just trying to get that little bit of an edge. Yeah. And it does make a difference, especially, you know, after four, five, six, 10 days carrying that thing on your back every day. Yep, for sure. And that's where Kufaro is always so strong. Throw a load on your back and it's going to feel as good as it for me anyway. That's been the case. But I've always, you know, for the mountain hunts, gravitated to Stone Glacier due to their weight. I mean, they weigh nothing and they're good. I did like the K4 frame as well. I played around with that a little bit too. There's so many good options for packs. You know, get what I tell guys, price as many as you can. Go to an expo, try as many as you can on and buy with what feels right. You know, uh, yeah, you're not going to know what, what it feels like hiking up and down a mountain full of, low, full of weight, but you'll get a good idea from the shows. I think for a lot of people too, once they shell that money out, that's they're pretty committed. They don't get to try a bunch of different stuff after that. So, you know, it's kind of a one and done. So you better get your research done and uh, get as many on your shoulders as you can. Yeah. And the shows are a great place to do that because just about, you know, just about everybody's between Reno and the expo and you, you can try a lot of places and uh, come away with a pretty good idea. What's, what's, work for you but yeah i was a pack junkie for many many years maybe it was new i bought it and tried it uh sold it so let me ask you a couple more questions then we'll close this thing out when you go on a mountain hunt let's say a sheep hunt are you bringing your own spotter are you relying on the guide and sharing uh what's your personal preference there I've done it both ways. As I've aged in the last couple of years, I've relied on the guide just because I didn't want to carry it. I love having my own. Uh, and for a young man, there's no reason probably not to carry one. <laughs> but as I get older, I was trying to cut that weight out of my pack and my knees are bad. My shoulders are bad. And I've done the last couple of years, done everything I can to cut weight. And spotting scope was one of those really heavy items that, yeah, they were worth a lot to me, but it was a really heavy item that, that just needed to go for me. Now, when I was younger, 10 years ago, Ago, that wasn't an issue. Uh, but here at the end of my, and I say the end of my sheep career, I'm down to only drawing sheep now. I, I'm not booking sheep <laughs> hunts. So if I draw a sheep hunt, I'm going to go. But uh, I'm done booking sheep hunts. I've, I've killed 11 sheep and had a good uh, a good run. My sheep hunting days are probably be I think you bring up a good point. I mean, one after uh, two super slams, or I mean, uh, two grand slams, it kind of all kind of looks the same when you get up on the top there. When it's your first time, I mean, it just makes sense to to bring your own stuff and look wherever you want and enjoy the whole entire experience. You know, for a lot of people, especially like me, I speak for my own self. Once, once I get to do it once, that probably be, I'll probably be one and done. I mean, just getting a sheep tag now is such a special experience. You better be trying to milk all the enjoyment you can out of it. Yep. That's exactly right. My, I just got bit so hard by the bug after my first one. Um, I just had to do it. And I was fortunate in that, you know, pre-COVID, I did a lot of this. Pricing was a lot better 10 years ago than it is now. Uh, I've, I've managed to do probably one sheep hunt a year for the last 10 years. Uh, but yeah, it's my run is over. I killed a nice doll in August and, and uh, another one the previous August. And I, I think uh, I've had my fill of sheep. Yeah, I think Central Asia, you know, there was a time where that was a pretty much unsung secret, uh, a pretty achievable. I don't know why I didn't know about it, but apparently I didn't. So, and the secret's out now. I don't think there's any secrets anymore, any super good deals. So you had just have to decide what you want to try to do, commit yeah. and, and do it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I would I would hate to try to, like you said earlier, undertake a super slam at, at today's pricing. You need to have a lot of a lot of bank behind you to accomplish that goal. There's guys doing it, but uh it's a lot different than it was ten years ago for sure. Yeah, I mean it's still an amazing feat. And you know, I have hats off to anybody, but 
I remember when we talked about it, but I remember when Chuck Adams did it, you know, and I thought, man, that's amazing. And now, you know, I look at it and I don't even think that's achievable. Yeah even if I really wanted it and made a commitment to do it. So I've got five animals left for my second one and it won't, I, it won't happen. I'm not doing polar bear again with the import restrictions. And there's a couple of species that I just don't necessarily even care to chase again. Um, so I may end up, you know, three short, but which is fine with me. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, having already. So I'm going to circle back to that and ask you, but Right now, I want to talk about how you get your, let's say your optics or your rifle system or your bow. How are you flying that out there? What do you trust as a, I guess, as a luggage system as you travel about? Um, SKB on the archery side. Uh, I just got back from Mexico last week, as you know. I had an archery coos deer hunt there. Um, traveled with my SKB hard case all the way down. Um, I have used the Badlands Terraglide. I don't trust that quite as much, but it's not even an option when your bow is a little longer. And I've got a 33-inch axle-to-axle bow right now, so Badlands Terraglide is not even an option for me um, right now, which I have, but it's not an option. So SKB has pretty much been 99% of what I've traveled with airline-wise with a bow. On the gun side, uh, same thing. I've used some SKB cases, Pelican cases on, on the gun side. I only ever had one issue uh, with a case, and I think a forklift ran over my bow case in Africa. It had tracks still on the case, and it crushed one of my bows. Uh, luckily, the other bow inside the case was not damaged. Uh, only issue I've ever had, they have lost my bow on the way to Mexico last year. It got lost for a couple days and finally showed up in Hermosillo, but uh, had very few problems traveling with firearms and archery gear. Firearms seem to get a special marking that airlines don't want to mess with losing those for the most part. With the exception of Vancouver, I think people play games in Vancouver with firearms. <laughs> uh, other than that, uh, very, very few issues traveling with firearms or archery gear. Yeah, I use a SKB double case myself. I've put my rifle in it and Took it to Alaska and not had any dramas. Uh, my hunt partner also has SKB. On one of his trips, I don't know if they tried to break it on purpose, but they did crack the SKB case. Mm. And he just called them and, and they overnighted a, a deal. It was He had a brand new case to fly home with, so it was a non-issue. I've got a buddy that travels with a tough pack. You know, it looks like golf clubs, which is kind of nice. But he usually put, you know, a, a deer-sized animal anyway, or maybe even sheep horns inside with his bow after the hunt. And that's one of the reasons he travels with a tough pack. He can uh he can actually on the right the right type of hunt get the get his get his horns in the in the tough pack as well. So I've always looked at that and been intrigued with the tough pack situation. What about your other gear? Are you putting it just in a duffel bag and, and flying it out? Is that pretty much how you do it? Or Yeah, the animal you mean or the other gear, did you say? No, other gear. The other yeah. gear, just in a soft-sided duffel bag, as light as I can be. Aro used to make a really nice light duffel bag, and mine has finally got holes in it. Uh, I've used it so much. But I use, uh, Kuyu has a, a strap. You can strap your duffel bag to your archery or gun case. Comes in really handy. I love it. Um, it's, a, it's a fairly inexpensive luggage strap that Kuyu cells and you can attach your your duffel bag right to your your firearm or your bow case and it actually works great i've been using it for a couple of years i got a little strap i use on my skb that i put uh i got those polar bear soft-sided coolers yeah so when i travel somewhere and bring it back pulling that in the in the airport's a little easier strapped on the wheels of the skb Sure. Yeah, I'm always interested in seeing what guys do to get their animals home. And I traveled with duffel bags, you know, on the airline. Yeah, me too. It's I think that's a thing that a lot of people forget about is how you're going to get all that stuff home. That's important when you're traveling. Definitely. I, I have had services take care of it for me, but it takes a lot longer and it's really expensive. 
but whenever I can, I try to get it in a duffel bag and, and get it home with me. It's expensive to get it on the airplane with you, but a, a lot of times that's the best choice. It's just, then you don't have to worry about it. You're not losing it. Yep. It's expensive no matter how you do it. Yeah, for sure. And going through an importer exporter situation and trying to go taxidermist and about three people get their hands in the hands in on that one. So nothing hunting related is cheap. Everybody yeah. has a middleman for sure. Exactly. I guess uh, anything you think we missed out on here, Corey, we want to cover? Not to talk about when it comes to hunting, and I love to talk hunting. So unless you got something specific, I could probably go on all night. So. <laughs> well, I do want to ask you, so you've taken all 29, uh, two Grand Slams. I mean, what what stands out? What's your favorite hunt, I guess, closing out? The sheep, by far. I, I fell in love with sheep hunting. Uh, I love being on the mountain. I love sleeping on the mountain. Just everything about it. You know, I, I never dreamt I'd be a sheep hunter. I, I read about it as a kid, outdoor life, read about that and the Kodiak brown bear. You know, the sheep and the Kodiak brown bears are two things I read about growing up that I just dreamed of of doing someday. And I've uh, been fortunate enough to do them both multiple times and have good success at both. And yeah, I couldn't be happier with the, with the outcome of some of those. But I'd have to say sheep, sheep in general, whether it's desert sheep or Rocky Mountain sheep or doll sheep. Yeah, stone sheep, yeah, any of them. I love them all. All right. I appreciate you making some time with us. And uh, anybody wants to follow up and, and hit you up, where can they find you at? The best place is on Rockslide. I'm Coda Man. Uh, PM me there. Also, if you got questions, you want to email me or text me, you can throw those out there if you if you don't mind, Sam. Uh, my mail is C-E-N-I-N-S at Dactel.com, D-A-K-T-E-L.com. Always happy to help fellow hunters uh, with gear questions, outfitter questions, uh, anything. All right. Good on you, Corey. I appreciate you giving back. Like I said, I appreciate you making some time to come on. I know uh, it was busy trying to catch up with you getting back from Mexico here and there. And man, that's a great coup. So uh -oh. thank you. Yep. Appreciate it. All right. We'll be in touch. No doubt. I, I got a hankering to go somewhere myself. So thanks, Sam. This has been great. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. Moving on. We've caught up with Brock Akers. He's going to tell us about his newest review, the Crispy Shemick Boot. Uh, yeah, so this uh, a new a new leather uh, boot that came out this year by Crispy. Uh, it, like I had mentioned in my review, I've been wearing the same boot for a long time, and I was a little worried uh, to switch it up because I found a boot that had worked for me. And um, man, boots are finicky. You hate you, they can make or break a hunt real quick. Anyway, I uh, I had heard a lot of good things about Crispy. Um, I said, you know what. I'll, I'll give them a shot. Um, they were pretty similar to what I've been wearing. You know, they're a, a leather boot. These ones have 400 grams of insulation in them. So I was worried they might be a little warm. Um, however, they weren't. And I, I got to wear them in some warm weather and some, some, and plenty of cold weather. So it was good. I, um, uh, it was down into the, into the single digits a couple times in the ice and snow. And, and then, you know, I think I was probably in the mid sixties, and sunny on some of the other hunts that I that I'd worn them in. Got quite a few miles on them uh, for for a season, um, and no no issues whatsoever. Um, break in process was, and this was kind of blew me away. The break in process was next to nothing. They they're just flexible enough to where um, you know you don't have to do that uh, you know 10, 20, 30 mile break in process that a lot of leather mountain boots do require. Um, Crispy rates these boots at as a flex too. 
Yeah, so they're flexible. Um, I, I was a little concerned with that at first, I'll be honest. I was like, man, if this being this flexible, are they going to last? Are they going to break down after a season? You know, which is, you know, like if you look at uh, like the Solomon Quest, those those things are really flexible and really comfortable, but you can't get more than a season out of them, you know. So, but I was really happy. They they went all season, no problem. There's no no issues, no cracking, no separations. Um, everything's great on them. I'm looking forward. I should be able to get a full season out of them next year again, no problem. Just super happy with them, which is good. I was, like I said, I was a little nervous at, at the beginning about switching boots. You know, you hate to open that can of worms, but uh, everything went pretty flawless. The Onyx Hunt Elite subscription will provide way more value than the $100 annual fee will cost you, and that's before you apply the 20% Rockcast promo code. You'll use Onyx on every hunt, every planning session, and now save money with exclusive deals on gear from the industry's best. Onyx Elite also includes application and draw odds tools, educational resources for all species, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage, and now Canada. Onyx Hunt Elite is trusted by millions. Onyx has also released new features to help make hunters more successful. Already known for nationwide public and private land ownership and being a fully functional GPS without service, Onyx Hunt has just released new aerial imagery options like Leaf Off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back and imagery on demand. On top of that, Onyx is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your Hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates Onyx has for this hunting season. So try Onyx Hunt for free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com and use promo code ROCKCAST for 20% off your new Onyx Hunt membership. Yeah, and these are full grain, new buck leather, and then they have a full rand on them. Yeah, yep, goes all the way around. Yep, exactly. And they're, what, an eight inch, eight inch height? Yeah, yep, nice and, you know, good, good ankle support. Um, lace those suckers up and, and off you go. All right, Brock. I guess uh, you'll be using them into next year, and uh, you'll report back and let us know how they're holding up. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. I'll keep the thread updated. All right. If anybody has any questions for Brock, they can reach out for him on uh, Rockslide, and I'll have his review thread uh, linked in the show notes. Thanks for coming on, Brock. Awesome. Thank you. We got Kyle Sandusky to talk about the new Maven, and I'm pretty excited to hear about this RS 1.2 rifle scope. Been uh, getting a lot of traffic there on the forums, and looks just like it's a pretty impressive hunt scope. So let's have Kyle tell us all about it. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Hey, Sam. How you doing? Pretty good. Tell us about this Maven. It kind of uh, jumped up on my radar a little bit surprised uh, Dione started a thread on there. I had no idea about it. Digging into it a little bit, I talked to to Kate over at Maven, and he just kind of described it to me as a scope that they really wanted to create for like every hunter. Uh, he'd kind of talked a lot about talking to folks at like the great American outdoor show in Pennsylvania who talked to him about coming West to hunt deer and elk, you know, cause they're, they're in Wyoming, Maven is. And so they just kind of came up with, uh, these ideas of, of what a lot of folks from out East were thinking would be a really good Western scope. 
and then they looked at what they had in the in the RS1 scope and uh, refined it a little bit and came out with the the RS1.2 version. So I, I was pretty excited to get my hands on one and, and do a little testing with it and just kind of see how well it would uh, do for zero retention and tracking and all those other things. Yeah, and I'll link that thread up that the only started, but yeah, that's a, a pretty monster thread. I think it's 53 pages or something, so it's pretty intense. Uh, why don't you walk us through some of the features of the scope, and then we'll get down to the nitty-gritty. Well, it's a, it's a 30-millimeter tube. I think it's 2.5 to 15-power, 44-millimeter objective lens. I think it comes in right at like 26, 27 ounces. Some big changes they made from the RS1 version to the RS1.2 version uh, is they added a, a real zero stop, which is a big deal for uh, a lot of folks who want to dial. They added illumination on the side, parallax, and depending on who you kind of want to believe, some folks think that they re- rebuilt the internals. Talking to Cade, he just kind of talked through a little bit of QC, QA refinements. I, I would kind of describe it, you know, my take on what he described as uh, constant quality improvements. And, and that seemed to maybe enable the scope to track a little bit better than maybe folks had thought in the past and, and pulled zero. I think it did just fine in these tests. So that's um, a little bit different. I, I tested uh, the RS3 version before, and I think some others had done some RS5s and, and other types of uh, scopes from Maven, and, and it seems like this one uh, held zero a little bit better than those. So what exactly magic uh, went into it is anybody's guess, but uh, the folks at Maven seem to think that uh, what they had before was pretty close and just took a, a little bit of fine tuning to get it there. How many uh, revolutions are in the turret? As far as mills? So it's yeah. each each revolution is ten mils, and then total revolutions. There might be five or so. Let me see if I can check it real fast. So I know I know each revolution is ten mils. So I had it set up with a a canted rail, a twenty moa rail, and I had about two and a half revolutions left. So I had about twenty five mils of adjustment left still. Overall, uh, they're saying there's about 29 mils total elevation travel um, on there. So plenty, no matter what you're doing. It should be. Yeah, for sure. Let's step it back one step. This is a FFP scope. You can get it. uh, One of the things Maven's known for is their customizable options. So you can get it in different colors, uh, and I think they offer it maybe in some camo patterns. I'm not really for sure everything that it's offered in. Yeah, so I think you can get it in, it's basically a black body, no matter what. And then like the accent colors of like the objective lens and the ocular lens, you can get in the different colorways that they have, which would be like... Orange and gray, yeah. Red, orange, gray, green, blue. I don't think camo is an option for the body of the rifle scopes. For the binoculars, it is because they're rubber armored, but the scopes themselves, they don't have rubber armored, they're just anodized, so they're... I think they're always black, and then you're just playing with kind of the accent colors on the custom features. All right. I guess we've covered the features pretty well. What about uh, windage? Windage is a little bit less. Uh, I think they've got about 21 mils of windage uh, in there. But it's a cap windage system? Yeah, it's capped windage. Uh, you can unscrew the the turret that's underneath the cap and reset it to zero, and then it tells you uh, how many tenths of a mil each rotation. So it's pretty easy to use, and then you just reset it to zero and put the cap back on. The other thing that I think a lot of people really focused on in those threads was the reticle. The reticle at low power, to my eyes, I see it as just basically... Uh, 
like a standard duplex. It's pretty darn easy to see even at two and a half power. In that review, there was a small herd of elk that had kind of been hanging out. I couldn't find it. So I found some mule deer and tried to get some pictures low and mid range and then full power of the mule deer. But so my eyes, low power, two and a half, I think five to six is a real, real nice sweet spot for that reticle, but it's real easy to see regardless of, of any of the light conditions. And then as you zoom in, the subtensions are real easy to pick up as well. So the lines are pretty bold. Um, I think when some folks were talking about comparable reticles, like in the Trigicons and the Bushnells, the, the LRTS, LRHS series, the Maven's got a little bit bigger lines in the reticle. 0.1 mils is, is is what the smallest part of the thickness uh, of the smallest part of the reticle is. And, and on those other scopes, they're, they're quite a bit thinner, I believe. Really, the only thing that I maybe found a little bit lacking, the illumination wasn't very strong. So I didn't have the opportunity to really kind of look in some dark timber or anything like that. And that would probably be the, the, the strongest case for the illumination, but it's just the center dots illuminated. Uh, in a lot of those pictures that I had out in the field, the dot was on, but you just couldn't really tell. I'm not a big fan of illumination. Um, sometimes it can halo, but I do think it helps you center up the scope quickly. So in that aspect, it, it's really handy. Yeah, for sure. I, I've the the night fork scopes that I I've I've used before. I don't even know if I have batteries in them, to be honest, because I've never I've never flipped it on to 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 look for the illumination at all, like when I'm out in the field or anything. So I, I think some people care about it. I it's not a big thing on my priority list for sure. Why don't you uh, take us through how you tested the Maven once you got it mounted up? I shot it a lot. I started off, uh, I just wanted to play around. I, I had a handful of cartridges still loaded from hunting season for my 30-odd six and for our six and a half Creedmoor. So I shot through all those just to uh, to get a feel of the view. When I got it, I think I got it maybe around Thanksgiving or so and it was snowing quite a bit. So I just kind of went out to the range, screwed around a little bit with it, put it on the rib fire, sh- shot it quite a bit then. And then I put it on, I've got a, a Tika, it's in a KRG Bravo, it's a 22 BR barrel, so it's pretty easy to shoot, and I had a whole bunch of bullets for it, and we've got 300 pieces of brass, so I can load it in bulk, basically, so I shot through all those uh, a few times, and some of it I videoed, some of it I didn't, I mean, I don't know how to actually pronounce his handle, but for Middleless, he's kind of got, you know, that outline written out through his own experience of tracking testing and zero retention testing. So I I ran through a lot of those several times um, and I actually ordered a second scope too um, because initially for zero retention, this scope was passing. I thought it was passing. Um, So I wanted to get another sample. So I actually ended up shooting two of these scopes. I had a gray one and then a black one and they both performed the same. So I shot through them a bunch, and then Sydney went out the the last day, my last bit of uh, bullets that I had, and we were able to get the the video that I have in the review on there uh, of the zero retention testing. We also did tracking testing, so I dialed up. What did I dial up? Five mils dialed up and down, did 11 shot zero confirmation, seven shot zero retention testing, return to zero testing, and then we actually did tracking twice because one of the groups that I shot, it was off, I think maybe like three eighths of an inch or so. So we wanted to kind of, the little bit of bullets that I had loaded left, just wanted to test and see if that was a, a Kyle thing or a scope thing, but they were pretty darn close. So overall, I feel like I think I put maybe 
eight, nine hundred shots underneath it. And then what we have on the video and then on that final review, I feel like there's like over 70 on there. So I think for the time that I had it, definitely put it through its paces. I couldn't find anything wrong with it. So, you know, some of those drops that we did were from like shoulder height. I know some people don't really necessarily buy into the zero retention testing or anything like that, but just watching it and doing it and stuff and like having done it before and seen scopes not hold zero and seen other scopes hold zero, it's uh, it's hard not to believe it when, when you've actually done it yourself several times. So I'm always impressed when it passes the drop test. And my drop test, what he's talking about is a 36-inch drop. He does it three times, uh, shoots the gun after every time, and he's recorded it. I'll link his review. It's extensive, a lot of charts, a lot of information. And like he said, he shot this uh, scope on multiple guns, and he shot it a lot. So there's a lot of information in there. I don't know. Anything else you want to kind of share with us Kyle closing out here you know I think if someone's looking for a scope where you could buy a scope and you could probably expect it to last your lifetime this definitely fits into that mix previously I I have several Night Force SHV scopes I think they're 32 ounces I use them because I know they work if somebody was looking you know in that thousand to fifteen hundred dollar range and just wanted to purchase a scope and say you know I don't really want to have to worry about anything this should definitely get their attention for sure Somebody who watches the video, the the drop testing and the zero retention testing, I think it's a bit of a spectacle and sort of unbelievable that, you know, some of those drops are chest height, shoulder height. Being able to still place bullets where you want to is, uh, I think, a testament to, to how well some of these scopes are put together. And, and, you know, like I said, I did this with two different ones and they both perform the same. So in my eyes, that, that kind of lends to a majority or probably nearly all that you could purchase of this model. This RS 1.2 model is probably going to have a really, really good chance of, of doing the same thing. Yeah, there's definitely a feature-rich scope. The scopes that have passed the drop test, if that's an important feature to you, definitely fit on less than two hands with all your fingers up. So uh, the choice is pretty small there, especially with all the features. So pretty awesome. Yeah. I'll uh, link up your review. And if people want to get a hold of you, where can they find you at there? Uh, from that review at the bottom of, there's there's a link to the like the discussion thread. Whatever questions they have uh, can go to there. And I uh, I work remotely, so I'm I'm always got the rock slide up in the background. So I'll get I'll get an answer to whatever questions folks have, and pretty darn quick. All right, Kyle, I appreciate you making some time and uh, coming on the show bringing the scope to our attention. And for sure, I'm going to be checking it out as I go through a couple shows this year, no doubt. All right, you got it, Sam. Thanks. You pursue them, you cherish them, and now it's time to protect them. This is the Mule Deer Foundation. Our mission is the conservation of mule deer, black-tailed deer, and their habitats, the heart and soul of the West. Join the herd today and help us preserve the legacy of these majestic creatures for generations to come. Your membership supports essential conservation projects, research initiatives, and educational programs that secure a future for mule deer and black-tailed deer. Our deer, our heritage, our responsibility. Don't just witness their journey, be a part of it. Join the herd. Together, we can make a difference. Visit muledeer.org today. We got Matt Cashel with the Kawa 66 millimeter. He's going to tell us about this beauty. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me, Sam. Good to see you once again. 
Yeah, the Koa 66A. It's a Promenade Series spotter, and the Promenade Series from Koa are their flagship models. And now with the 55, 66, 88, and 99, they all have a fluorite crystal element. So that's pretty cool. That's, uh, that's something that nobody else is putting in their spotters right now. A lot of people understood maybe they were arguably the best of the best in the in the big boy club, but now that they came out with this 55 and 66, you know, they really are catering to those guys that are uh, putting a lot of miles on. Yeah. Most of the serious hunters I know that went with Koa or even learned about Koa was through the 55, you know, because there just weren't any really high performing 55 millimeter spotters out there. So they, when that one hit the market, people were like, whoa, that's really good for something so tiny. Yeah. Tell us about this 66. I know uh, we talked a little bit about it, staff review, and you really just fell in love with it. Kind of run us down through all the features. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I recently sent it back to Koa. They wouldn't let me just hang on to it for indefinitely. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it was a great spotter. I, I, I have the 88. I use it a lot. It's super similar. I love the Koa dual focus system, a traditional focus knob location. I like all of that. I find it's a little more intuitive to get a really precise focus. With the 66, I was expecting it to be really good, like every Koa spotter is, but I just was kind of surprised just how good it was and how much it pushed my 88. I mean, the images are pretty much indistinguishable in good light. And then uh, it takes some pretty low light for that 88 to step away. And it only does so briefly before it gets really dark. Yeah. So all of the uh, advantages of the big scope without the extra bulk and weight. If somebody's looking for one premium scope that they can throw on their backpack, put in the truck, take to the range, do some digiscoping, you know, one scope to do everything, it is going to be really hard to beat this particular scope, the TSN 66A, at least right now in the market. Uh, there's other great 65 millimeter scopes out there, the Leica, the Swarovski, that whole slew of them in the mid range that are similar those are they're all perfectly capable but this scope is a step above the rest of that competition in this size class yeah and when you're talking alpha optics you know that little slight edge is a is a big deal it's it's hard to get something that's noticeably better than something else it's either something you like a little bit better or not but i want to ask about uh you could put two separate eyepieces on there you kind of went in that in your your review a little bit why don't you recap that for us yeah, so uh, in addition to the industry-leading eyepiece, I think that the 25 to 60 wide-angle zoom eyepiece that Koa has, uh, they sent their ultra-wide-angle eyepiece, which is, um, oh, I think, what does it give? 35? Yeah, 35 power magnification on the 66 and the 88 and bump that up to 40 on the 99. But that eyepiece is really impressive. Super, super wide angle. Like the, the 25 to 60 is already really wide in that 30 to 40 power range. But the it's called the TE80XW, extra wide, I suppose, eyepiece. And it's just, it's phenomenally wide. It's so good for digiscoping that you you can just put your phone up there and you don't have to pinch to zoom. Like with uh, with several of the adapters that I used, they uh, showed no vignetting whatsoever once you put the phone on there. Pretty impressive. I used the extra wide angle this year also with the 99 and I enjoyed it. I like the zoom lens just a little bit better. I like being able to, to take it all the way out there if I have to. 
Yeah. So I, like I wrote in the article, I think that the 25 to 60, the TE 11 WZ2 zoom eyepiece is going to be a lot better match for most hunters just because you have that ability to, in low light, turn it down and get a bigger exit pupil. And then when you need detail to turn it all the way up to 60 power, you just, you can't replace that with one. But it was interesting just how useful that mid-range was like I took it on a, a bow hunt where that was the only eyepiece I had and I really didn't feel under glass at any time but uh I'm considering buying that eyepiece myself personally just because I do a lot of digiscoping and using it specifically for that task I think uh is where it shines the most oh nice all right anything you want to recap with no, you know, there there were some downsides to the COLA. Uh, I mentioned in the staff favorites article and podcast that the uh, extender, the 1.6 extender, was kind of underwhelming for most field uses. And I still wish, even though they put a tiny bit of armoring on the new COA scopes, more than what they had in the previous generation, it would be awesome if they just fully armored them so that uh, you weren't worried about scratching the finish, that sort of thing. I would like to see an Arca Swiss foot. Not that big of a deal. Just do it. Just bring it. Arca is the standard. Why not make them all Arca? For sure. All right. If anybody has any questions, they can reach out to you. They're on Rockslide. They can find you at... Matt Cashel's name on Rockslide. All right, buddy. All right, Sam. Good to talk to you. We'll catch up with you later. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon, Sam. Moving on to the Howl for Wildlife Minute. Today, we're going to talk about Howell's petition for Washington State Fish and Wildlife Commission to immediately withdraw the proposed conservation policy. Washington State Wildlife or Resources, as clearly stated in RCW 77.04012, the Department and Commission mandate, as well as other Washington State laws and rules, the Commission cannot declare them beneficiaries contrary to existing law simply by adopting a policy. Further, the Commission cannot remove management contrary to the existing statute simply by adopting policy. Policy development process has not been transparent and non-inclusive. Washington law finds wildlife are resources, not beneficiaries. The Department, Fish and Wildlife, and Commission are directed to preserve, protect, perpetuate, and manage fish and wildlife. Sportsmen and their organizations have made and continue to make some of the state's greatest gains for wildlife. The Fish and Game Department has existing conservation policy already in place. Many terms in the draft document are vague and have no relation to wildlife conservation and management. The definition of conservation in the draft has no relation to standard definitions of effective and proven wildlife conservation. This policy calls for authorities outside the jurisdiction of the Department of Fish and Wildlife. Conservation is a science-informed social process, so delineating a conservation policy that excludes wildlife stakeholders can only harm conservation. There is no evidence that the policy development effort consisted of consultation with official entities such as the National Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, and most important, co-manager tribes that share wildlife conservation responsibilities, nor consulted any conservation partner, outdoor, or sporting entities. We demand the Washington State Fish and Wildlife Conservation withdraw the proposed conservation policy and cease further efforts to adopt a conservation policy unless there is a broadly engaged policy development effort. To join Howl for Wildlife in this effort, simply click on the link below and sign the petition. Let's do the right thing for Washington State. In closing, I want to encourage everyone to go vote for their favorite whitetail photo. The link is down below.
If you're going to be attending the Western Hunt Expo in Salt Lake City, please keep your eyes out for the one and only Robbie Denning. He really loves meeting all you guys, and you can tell him how much you enjoy listening to the show. Speaking of the show, if you have a topic you want to hear more about, or if you yourself would like to be a guest on Tipsy Tuesday, please reach out to me at sam at rockslide.com. Until next time, this has been Sam Weaver. Sam Weaver.